This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Tuesday, January 22nd, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, Iowa Senator Jody Ernst filing for divorce at issue, Jody Ernst's husband, Gail, has apparently been stymieing his wife's career. This is from the divorce filing. It refers to the summer of 2016. In the summer of 2016, Jody Ernst writes, I was interviewed by candidate Trump to be vice president of the United States. I turned candidate Trump down, knowing it wasn't the right thing for me or my family. I continue to make sacrifices and not soar higher out of concern for Gal and our family. Now, I've got to say, I do not know the facts or details of anyone else's marriage. But if the allegation of spousal fault is that the husband did support the wife all the way to her becoming a senator, but failed to support the wife all the way to becoming the vice president, the vice president to Donald Trump, that may actually be the greatest support of all. So you're saying if he were a better husband, you'd be Donald Trump's vice president? That's the knock against him for doing whatever it took? It seems like you should maybe give the guy credit for doing whatever it took by implication or overt action to impress upon you the downside of being Donald Trump's vice president. Now, let's say a neighbor's dog bit me and the bike got infected and I was supposed to fly the next day, but I couldn't fly. And that flight went down over the Pacific and lost everyone aboard. I'm not saying that I would go out and buy the neighbor's dog a supply of dog treats, but I wouldn't be calling animal control anytime soon. You certainly have to wonder about putting in the divorce filing that this is an example of my husband's failing. He prevented me from becoming the next Mike Pence. And keep in mind that unlike Mike Pence, Joni Ernst had a viable political career. She still does. She was not hated by the voters of her state at the time. Look, I, I don't know personally anything about the Jeff Bezos marriage, Jeff and Mackenzie Bezos, but I don't think that Jeff is going to ding Mackenzie with oh, you know what? She was against the Amazon phone, the Amazon fire. She said it wouldn't be a hit. But when it comes to Senator Ernst and the presidential bucket fire, I guess that is a charge. On the show today, in the spiel, my thoughts on the thoughtless teens of Covington Catholic. But first, she is a Chicago-based critic who's been writing about music since she was 16. A couple of years ago, she came out with Quote, the first collection of criticism by a living female rock critic, which is literally the name of a book and surprisingly close to literally true. She is now out with a memoir called Night Moves. In this discussion, Jessica Hopper and I talk about Jim DeRogatis, whose reporting broke the R. Kelly story. And we talk about why the Me Too movement hasn't hit the music industry as deeply as it's hit Hollywood. And of course, her memoir, Night Moves. 
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Jessica Hopper was the editor-in-chief of the Pitchfork Review. She is the author of the inaccurately, she will admit to, the inaccurately named the first collection of <laughs> criticism by a living female rock critic. But her new work is Night Moves, which bills itself as a memoir. I kind of think it's like just a collection of reflections, but uh, well done and terse and poetic from the mid to late aughts. Hello, Jessica. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. How would rock change if the electric guitar were never invented? I don't know. I just want to start off with a provocation. (laughs) (laughs) Would it still be rock? Oh, my gosh. Well, without the electric guitar, would we have... Would we would we have the indelible work of Sister Rosetta Tharp? Mm-hmm. Would we have everything that came after her? Where would we have gone? That's a good one. What would we be driven by? I mean, there'd be synth and there'd be keyboards and maybe the main instrument would maybe, be, I don't know, a mm-hmm. fiddle. Maybe be under harps. Yeah. Well, I don't Some know. Another think- stringed thing because you would have to balance it. I, I you just threw me a complete curveball. <laughs> would, every- would the doors be bigger than the Beatles? Would question mark and the Mysterians have oh, more than God. one hit? I mean, could we go? Could we rewind history and just erase the doors? That'd be fine by me. Yeah, um, I'm with you. Yeah. Is, or do critics hate the doors? <sighs> or is it like a, a too you know, easy, too easy an opinion? It just kind of. I mean, it depends because I think I think they were they were canon for so many people, and I think. I just don't think them uh, think of them as like a terribly sophisticated band, right? And which would be fine. And they're corny. And they're corny. And they're corny. I think reading those sort of contextual things about it, it's like the idea of really how you know visceral and sensual, and you know him and his leather pants, and even though he was as Ann Powers. You know, noted in her her most recent book, you know, anytime he was waving his dick around, it was limp. And and so I just, <laughs> you know, I, a very interesting sort of um, way to be associated with being like a very sexy rock god. Yeah. This guy who's waving his limp member around being the emblem. But, you know. To me, that's I, that's a, as far as I'm interested. <laughs> okay, so I want to. I do want to talk about uh, the memoir "Night Moves," which was about a specific period in your life. It's all periods in one's life are. Yeah. The number one thing was seeing music and riding riding pretty bad bicycles. That was that <laughs> defined your life and being cold in Chicago. <laughs> being cold, being hot. It's, it's it's there's so much. As someone said, there's so much weather in your book. Um, yeah, it's it's the book is is called from a blog I kept, from journals I kept, from fanzines I did between 2004 and 2008. And 2004 to 2008 is effectively, you know, the the beginning of my professional career as a writer. <laughs> so weren't you in Minneapolis before? I, I'm from Minneapolis. Right. And, so I was and then in Minneapolis. you did your fanzines there as a teenager. Yes. And yeah. I lived in LA for a few years and then moved to Chicago uh, in order to really be part of that music community. And I, I worked with music and I wrote on the side and I did all of these things for years. And then uh, around 2004, 2005, I, I 
decided to, you know, stop putting all this effort into supporting other people's careers and kind of um, put that energy into mine and, and start writing full time and and uh, or attempting to write full time. I was also, you know, DJing bad parties and I was, you know, God doing all sorts of dumb <laughs> jobs for money. But, um, well, the whole study said most people are critics and everyone's a DJ and you're both. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> How important was the bicycling to it? I didn't actually get a license, I think, until I was like 23. And so I was always, I had just been somebody who was always on my bike or on the bus. And so finally I got a car when I lived there. But still it felt, the car felt like weirdly unnatural. But my favorite place to listen to music is in the car. That is my place where I commune with records. If I'm reviewing record, I got to listen to it at least four times in the car. Yeah, it's important, too. I don't want to do the thing where I just read you back to you, but I want to ask about a couple phrases. Hold on. I I put them on the phone. Um, Alas, I returned home keyed and bedraggled and realized I could have ridden my bike and I needn't have gone into the hall looking for the cat in the first place as he was trapped in the closet. I have. Oh, yeah. And then you were talking about a security guard at the library you were working with and said, I have a neutral fascination with him. I just was underlining different phrases and wondering, are you using this like without thinking? Is that you're, you're, you're writing for yourself. It's a diary. It's, you never intend for anyone to read it. Well, uh, my blog was called Tiny Lucky Genius, a.k.a. The Unicorn's Tear. And um, <laughs> back then, the Internet operated in a different way. It was much more of a sort of, or at least we believed, much more cloistered space. And you wouldn't have been reading my blog probably if you didn't know me or maybe had read my fanzine or kind of at least knew me socially or cared about the same bands or, you know, I'd make these little fanzines. I was like 200 people maybe bought them on a tour with a band that I was in or something like that, you know? It was it was essentially private. It was on a closed circuit. It was a cloister of people who gave that kind of shit about punk rock. So the Jessica Hopper of today doesn't have the the message instilled in her that this isn't a place for women. There are definitely women who could do rock criticism and write about all sorts of music. But at the same time, you also had this Mm, it worked out that you were able to do it without so much scrutiny, right? You could write your fanzine, you could write your zines, and it's not like it was going to be jumped on by Twitter mobs. Is it better or worse for... Well, you tell me. Well, it was different. Yes. It was different. Um, people would write me letters, or people would uh, try to fight me at the hardcore show, or <laughs> people would beef with you <laughs> via their column in a different fanzine or you know it was just it was with the the mechanics were different um though it wasn't so fast moving or yeah, virulent the, you the know metabolism because, yeah yeah, yeah the, it was much slowed. it was the yeah. my forever joke about this but it's true is that if people were really pissed they'd use both sides of the paper <laughs> you know of the letter that they sent me you could tell by how hard they press their pen into it. Yeah, the passion. Yeah, yeah. and and I, I I crave a more analog life generally. Yeah. But but all of this is to say is that my experience has been just that the reaction to me being a well, I mean, initially a teenage girl with opinions to being a, a grown ass woman. You know, I as far as I know, I'm one of you know, a handful of women in their 40s writing about music still. It's different. It's different the way that people come after you about it. 
Do you think, I mean, I was reading a roundtable of people in the music industry saying that our industry, the music industry, is lagging behind the reckoning we're seeing in other forms of entertainment. Oh, absolutely. And why? I mean, I think it's it's really, it's complicated. And, and I think I have, a, maybe I have a slightly skewed sense of it. Uh, after After Harvey Weinstein, you know, came to light, um, around that time and in the months that followed, all of a sudden I heard from publications I had never written for, publications I would have loved to write for, and everyone wanted was coming to me saying, "What's who's the Harvey Weinstein in music? Surely you must know. Come on, let's like take him down. And, you know, I had over the previous decade probably six, seven stories that I had tried to report. And couldn't be reported for various reasons. Anybody who's who's worked within that end of journalism knows it's really hard, and it's still really hard that there's certain bars yeah. that you have to clear in order to be able to report on Before sexual Before Ronan stuff. had the story in The New Yorker, Ken Oletta had it all but buttoned up, and they wouldn't go to press with it because it has to be yeah. perfect, and you could have one strand of it that isn't, mm-hmm. and someone like, uh, that isn't nailed down, and then Harvey Weinstein mm-hmm. will destroy yeah, you. It, and even, even you know, when the, the 17 months that we were at, uh, MTV News, we actually had that last big Jim DeRogata story was with us for four and a half months, and there were reasons that we, that were basically kind of almost strangely procedural, that we couldn't, there was a certain bar that we couldn't clear despite having, having also multiple people on the story with Jim, Mm -hmm. and it was, you know, it wound up running at BuzzFeed in an abbreviated form, but at one point we had, you know, 14,000 words with it at MTV News, and it, and it, and some of these stories are so labyrinthine, but anyway, so all these all these publications were coming to me, going, "Surely you must have somebody." But one of the things that really, as I started to talk to people, I kept finding, and this is no shade on these publications, you know, some of them quite, all of them were quite reputable. They they all just wanted a big name, and they wanted it to be a kill shot. Mm-hmm. All the things that I had, uh, none of them were people who'd ever pressed charges. Um, some of them were people who also had consensual relationships with people who then sexually assaulted them or vice versa. You know, some of these things that we kind of see that are complicated. And and I wanted to report these things that were much more gray areas. People just wanted one person. They wanted it to be famous. They wanted it to be conspiratorial. They wanted a music's Harvey Weinstein. No one wanted the, the complicated stories. No right. one wanted stories with gray area. Or people are like, "Well, that band's too small." And it's like, "Well, it, <laughs> it, it still matters." The victims, the victim. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 these people have survived the same thing. And can I, can I just pause and yeah, ask you this yeah, yeah, question? Yeah. So, with the Harvey Weinstein story, uh, you know, Ronan had it at MSNBC mm-hmm. or NBC, but NBC had interests broadly defined yeah. with Weinstein. Now, it strikes me as not coincidental that the New Yorker, which isn't doing any business with Weinstein, is the publication to break it. Maybe mm-hmm. a music publication always, you know, they work hand in glove with a lot of artists. I mean, the other thing about about some of the people I know who have come to me and other journalists with these stories, they only want to talk to women. And then there's some women I know at publications who aren't allowed to write about this stuff because the editor goes... You care too much. You're too close to it. You're too invested. You're not skeptical enough of these women because you believe them. And they think that's unjournalistic. I mean, it, it's so many different things. And then it is also, you know, my experience of not being able to get some of these stories through. It's because they were at publications who said, 
this person, this thing, this operation, this whatever it's associated with is too big. They have too much money, basically, mm-hmm. too big to go after, not worth the risk. What, what am I imagining this? Did you say about seven stories that you knew something about, let's say? Yeah. How many of those in some form have come to light? None. Really? Do you think for others in the music industry to get some version of a reckoning as R. Kelly is getting, does every future R. Kelly need their future Jim DeRogatis? One person who will steadfastly hunt that down, perhaps a great professional and personal cost? I mean, that's kind of the baffling thing is because how hard Jim and other people have had to work for years to convince people, to get people to care about R. Kelly in particular. Um, I mean, God, I hope, I hope it's not a matter of that. Um, I don't know. I, you know, it's something I think about so much. You know, but I think anybody who knows a fair amount of these stories knows just how endemic it is to music historically. Mm-hmm. Um, and that once, everyone says, once the ball starts rolling. I mean, the ball has started rolling. And the thing is, is lots of times it's been smaller stories. You know, people who aren't pitchfork news level yeah. bands. And so there are things that are happening on smaller levels. And uh, and and so pe- so I think it's a little unfair for people to go, well, Where's the reckoning? Well, the reckoning is happening everywhere because everyone's talking about it and everyone's thinking about it. And I don't think there's like one right way for this to happen where it's like a lightning bolt strikes, like how it's happened with, you know, these Hollywood level stars in part because I think um, people who are in smaller music scenes, people have a lot to lose and almost nothing to gain. Right. You know? Yeah. Jessica Hopper is the author of The New Night Moves and uh, is a... you know, I'm going to say fairly extremely important voice <laughs> in the last 20 years of music writing and criticism. Jessica, great to meet you. Thanks for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. And now the spiel. Indifference in the face of injustice is bad, but uncertainty in the face of ambivalence is not The rowdy teens of Covington Catholic versus the stoic drumming of Native American activist Nathan Phillips would be a perfect Rorschach test if you allow for an inkblot that dons a MAGA hat. So McGorshack, perhaps you spent hours of careful analysis or perhaps you clicked two tweets and decided that the irresponsible teens of Covington Catholic were horrible louts, that they were emblematic of privilege and power. Or perhaps you've since concluded that, though they're somewhat disrespectful dumbasses, they didn't realize their poses would so provoke. Either way, you would be hard-pressed to concoct a more potent example of the fault lines of American society if you'd contracted with a den of fancy bear operatives to assist you. As good as the Russians have become at inflaming America, they have nothing on Americans ourselves. The confrontation at the Lincoln Memorial plunged a finger into the most sensitive nerve within the cavity that has become the national discourse. It had everything. Trump, white kids, a Native American elder, black cultists in the background screaming anti-gay invective, abortion, remember, they were there for the pro-life march, and forensic videography. The only way it could have been more polarizing would be if the original footage were pulled off Anthony Weiner's hard drive. Now, 
As for the videography, that's really what Americans love. Almost 40 years ago, the critic George Trow wrote about the context of no context. Now, this was a pre-CNN, let alone pre-Twitter, Snapchat, WhatsApp world. But the idea of the trivial being mistaken for the profound and vice versa obtains. Americans love nothing more than seeing some footage and debating and contemplating or hastily deciding what that means. In fact, the AFC Championship game this past Sunday drew more viewers than any TV show since last year's Super Bowl. And the game was an exercise in viewing and reviewing plays on videotape. Ratings went up as we paused to examine 8, 10, 12 times whether a bouncing ball did or didn't scrape a fingertip of Julian Edelman. And if you want a referendum on whether Americans take offense at red-hatted white people taking little care with the Traditions of Native Americans. This is 76,000 people at Kansas City's Arrowhead Stadium. The tomahawk chop and the attendant chant is set off when a Kansas City Chiefs player beats a faux ceremonial giant war drum. But so many of us have decided that the boisterous teens of Covington Catholic acted not just abhorrently, but aberrantly. To those who saw the original video as an affront, the MAGA hat was very triggering and not without reason. One of the defenses of the foolish teens of Covington Catholic was, though they were accused of shouting, build the wall, there's no evidence or video of them actually shouting, build the wall. By the way, that's remarkable. Think about this. Build the wall is the signature proposal of the President of the United States. It is the issue animating the most pressing short-term dispute in America today, the shutdown. It is also used unquestioningly, and correctly, by the way, as shorthand for racial animus, for fighting words. Every conservative commentator who came to the defense of the odious teens of Covington Catholic cited as defense exhibit A or B that those teens never said build the wall. So get this, the absence of vocally endorsing the president's platform by name is cited as exculpatory, often by the very same people who think that building a wall is the right policy. Ben Shapiro is such a commentator. I checked in with his show, as I do, to get a sense of where the right was in describing the confrontation. And Shapiro was spitting mad, but also spitting ads. If you're not willing to call out lies, then you are not doing your job as a journalist. Speak truth to power, dem democracy dies in darkness. All these media liars. I'll get to that in just one second. First, we need to talk about how you can save time and money. Here's an easy way to save time and money and to cool down right now. Go online shopping. And when you do, make sure that you use Honey. You've probably heard me talk about Honey. It's the free, amazing browser audition extension. Time and time again, Shapiro got to a breaking point of disgust at the sheer injustice of it all, only to be redirected at the last minute by an ad read. And then there was talk of Nick Sandman, the high school junior who smirked. Definition of smirk, smiling while MAGA. Ben Shapiro began to read Sandman's professional PR firm coded statement. But again, the commercial imperative intervened. I was thankful nothing physical had happened. In a second, I'm going to read you the rest of the student's statement. But first, I need to tell you about life insurance. So here, here's the reality. We're all going to plot. And when we plot, we're going to mount to make sure that our family had some money. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to tell you there is a rot in our body politic. And I never thought I would say it. But the name 
of this rot is Skittles candy available in seven exciting fruit flavors. Grab the rainbow as I grab for a copy of the Constitution, because this document, which I keep close to my breast pocket, has the answers. It is all we need to beat back these dark forces that threaten us from within and without these instincts that are tearing us apart that cannot be reassembled except with craftsman tools flex claw hammer a rotating head converts into a pry bar for two tools in one to shapiro and laura ingram and donald trump the disrespectful teens of covington catholic are victims or heroes their heroism laying mostly in the fact that they caused the libs to own themselves to Laura Wagner, writing in the Concourse, the news organizations that pulled back on their initial assessments are, quote, performing reasonableness. Now, how would that differ from actual reasonableness? It seems reasonable, and I use the word in the non-pejorative sense, which I just found out existed. So it seems reasonable to acknowledge that the more we saw, the more we should place these regrettable teens of Covington Catholic somewhere between the buffoonish and insensitive continuum as opposed to between the cruel or evil side of the ledger. It may seem like I'm doing that thing where I decry the divisiveness, where I'm asking us all to heal. That is what we call a platitude. That's often an argument employed after, say, a mass shooting to short-circuit the necessary discussions, including sometimes a contemplation of a new law or a norm that could serve to advance us all. But that is not what's going on in this case. If we never saw this video, all of the people in the video would be going on with their lives today largely unaffected. I don't think the petty mockery of the ill-mannered teens of Covington Catholic would sear itself onto the conscience of Nathan Phillips for years or even days to come. He would probably say something like, what a bunch of jerks, and then he'd have moved on. We have, as a country, expelled so much angst, so much societal surrace over an ambivalent and, let's say, ignorant and rude act. The Russians know us well. They're so good at exploiting our fissures because we jump right to the most extreme emotions over such a wide range of, at worst, irksome acts. The bothersome teens of Covington Catholic aren't heroes or horrors. They're not victims or unambiguous villains. They're symptoms of this fever that's becoming a pandemic. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname is citing in the divorce papers with fellow just producer Daniel Schrader the fact that Daniel stymied Pierre's interests in the side project where I scat sing over a backing track by Blackstreet. TJ Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcast, tried to intervene in the Daniel Pierre spat with one simple declaration. It was no, just no, diggity. The gist, I continue to not soar higher out of my concern for Gail Ernst and also this thing that Daedalus once told me. Oomperu, depperu, dupperu, and thanks for listening.